0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And as we were working on this week's show, we we realized something kind of interesting. Nearly all the people we interviewed had one thing in common. I slept zero hours, but, you know,
1: it was totally worth it.
2: The big thing you're going to have to give up is sleep. Sleep really, unfortunately, has been a casualty, and I hope one day to sleep a few more hours a night.
1: Now,
0: today's show is not actually about sleep, it's not about slumber, but a bunch of the folks we're about to hear from are rather sleep-deprived. That's because they're moonlighters, Washingtonians who are splitting their time between full-time jobs and part-time passions. We'll meet a veteran Capitol Hill staffer who moonlights behind the hostess stand at her new Georgetown restaurant. We'll hang out with some parents who really do just want to rock and roll all night. And we'll chat with people who've actually turned their hobbies and side jobs into their primary pursuits. But the first sleep-deprived Washingtonian we'll meet works like a dog to keep her dual gigs going. And actually, one of those gigs has her working with a dog, too.
1: Okay, Brody. There you go. Thank you.
0: Well, a whole bunch of dogs, really, to date. Loki. More than 4,000. That's because Mira Horowitz volunteers as the executive director of Lucky Dog Animal Rescue, a D.C.-based group that, this particular afternoon, has driven a van full of rescued canines to the National Geographic Museum in northwest D.C. Dozens of people line the driveway as Horowitz presents them with their new adoptive or foster pets. Since Horowitz started Lucky Dog in May 2009, the all volunteer nonprofit has saved roughly 4,200 dogs from shelters in Virginia and the Carolinas. The two dozen or so animals arriving today come from a shelter inside South Carolina's Pickens County Prison.
1: These dogs had been in the shelter where there is a 100% euthanasia rate. Every single one of the dogs that came off the van today would have been killed if it wasn't for us. And some of them are a little tentative to come out of the crate. They don't really know, do I really want to come out of this crate right now? And then they do, and it's like, wow, this whole new life.
0: And making that whole new life possible takes a ton of energy and effort. After all, Lucky Dog isn't just constantly seeking adoptive and foster homes. It's seeking the right ones. So Mira Horowitz's moonlighting gig involves quite a bit of matchmaking, I guess you could say. But then, can you give us a hint as to who you're looking for right now? Her day job does too.
1: Sure. I'm doing a couple of searches. Um, You can see my search board over there of all the stuff I'm working on. As an executive
0: search consultant for Russell Reynolds Associates, Horowitz matches executive candidates with high-level positions at nonprofits. So right now, she's seeking everything from a vice president of research
1: for Michigan State University to the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the Senate president. And speaking of Senator Kennedy, in a way, Horowitz says he
0: greatly influenced her career path. Because, you see, she hasn't always done executive recruiting. After law school, she clerked for several justices, including Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer and eventually became legal counsel for Senator Robert Menendez and Senator John Kerry. And that's where Ted Kennedy comes in, because when Horowitz was growing up...
1: My father had worked for Senator Kennedy. He was his chief of staff. And every time a school vacation came along... I would beg my dad to please take me to work with him so I could answer the phones and ride the subway from the Russell building to the San Capitol and eat lunch at the Monocle. And that was like the best day in the world for me. So I grew up always thinking one day I want to be just like my dad and work in the Senate. So a little bit of a childhood dream (laughs)
0: come true. After achieving that dream, Mira Horowitz worked for the Obama administration before joining the U.S. Department
1: of Justice. But after some time, I started thinking, you know, I've done this government thing for a while. (laughs) I've actually, you know, I've been in all three branches. I've been in the executive branch. I've been in the legislative branch. I clerked on the court. So when she heard about the position at Russell Reynolds, she jumped at the chance. I realized that the interaction with people and the networking and the consultant aspect of what we do, it's like a puzzle. What do they want? What do they need? And what can they get? And trying to make those three pieces fit together is fascinating to me. And that same puzzle comes into play at Lucky Dog Animal Rescue. We have actually an official matchmaking team so that if people say, you know, I think I'm ready for a dog, but I don't really know what dog, and I don't really want to just pick off a picture on the internet or whatever, we'll take those applications and we'll work with them and talk to them and spend a lot of time with them and figure out what the right dog for their family is. Then there are the logistics of foster care for dogs who aren't immediately adopted. There are
0: the occasional medical issues and emergencies. So all in all, running Lucky Dog and working at Russell Reynolds definitely keeps Mira Horowitz on her toes. So you've got your Russell Reynolds time, your Lucky Dog time. When is your you time?
1: (laughs) I knew that question was coming. (laughs) Between 1 a.m. and 5 No. Um, you know, the, the, that's a little, there isn't a whole lot of, of of Mira time at this point.
0: But that's about to change. Lucky Dog has finally raised enough money to hire its first
1: paid employee.
0: A chief operating officer. And that could take a lot off of Horowitz's plate as Lucky Dog's executive director.
1: I would really like to see it become an organization that's a little bit separate from me. I think anyone who founds something wants it to live beyond them. And it's frankly something that I've learned at Russell Reynolds as I've done searches for organizations that their founder is moving on and it's a difficult thing and a challenging thing but it's an important thing it's important for the volunteers it's important for the organization it's in this case important for the dogs. For now though Horowitz says she's happy leading her double life
0: whether she's matching people and institutions or people and dogs like she did this afternoon outside National Geographic. How did it go today?
1: Oh it went really well all the the dogs came off looking very healthy and the adopters seem happy and the fosters seem happy. So it seemed to go really well.
0: So it's worth all the long hours.
1: It is worth the long hours. Absolutely. I wouldn't change it for the world. I really wouldn't. Even if it meant I could get, you know, a full eight hours of sleep every night, I wouldn't change it.
0: (laughs) Because it's one thing to be dog tired. It's something else to make sure that every dog, 4,200 and counting, has its day. For more on Lucky Dog Animal Rescue, visit our website, MetroConnection.org.
3: I'm just a-walking my dog, singing my song, strolling along. It's just me and my dog, catching some sun. can go wrong.
0: My love is So much like Mira Horowitz, this next guy we'll meet knows a lot about long hours spent at work. He also knows a thing or two about art, work. Peter Loge is a D.C. resident. His full-time job as a political strategist has him coaching clients on how to advance their causes by tapping into the procedural and policy-driven ways of Washington. But on the side, he makes art. Art that's about anything but rules and regulations. Jessica Gould talked with Loge about his two passions and how he finds the commonalities between two
4: seemingly different domains. Have you got a minute? From his home office in Adams Morgan, Peter Loge holds a phone to his ear while his fingers fly across a keyboard.
5: All right, so I just want some clarification on tomorrow's meeting. What do we need to come out of, out of
4: tomorrow? Loge is the principal at Milo Public Affairs, where he irons out political strategies for an array of clients ranging from America's Funniest Home Videos to the World Wildlife Fund. It's a diverse group. But he says he tells them all the same thing.
5: I think there's a logic to Congress. I think there's a logic to how people think about and operate on policy and on issues. And I help organizations figure out what that logic is.
4: Hear that? It's all about logic, except when it comes to his art.
5: You know, I spend my my day job as a communications and political consultant finding order in politics and saying there's a logic to this. It seems like it doesn't make any sense at all, but it makes a lot of sense. In my art, I say... It seems as if everything makes sense, and there's an underlying order to it, but it doesn't.
4: For years, Loge has spent his days preaching a gospel of predictability. Then, in the evenings, he makes art that demonstrates the randomness of reality. Take his piece Certain Memory, which he keeps in his basement.
5: It's the bottom half of a mannequin, so mannequin's legs and it's mounted on a, on a bit of a platform, and on top of the mannequin legs is a wooden box I made.
4: And inside the box, there's a string of photographs, a rose, a toy watch, and a broken wine glass.
5: We're very sure of what we know, but what we know is really not true. And so what this does is put that into question. It says what we, we don't remember things, we remember images of things. If you have a picture from your wedding, You look at your your wedding album and say, oh, I remember that. What you end up remembering is the photograph. And so we actually only have certain memories.
4: Loach says his artwork is inspired by Marcel Duchamp and the Dada movement. And his house is full of the stuff he's made. There are canvas cubes with tiny plastic people from model train sets and little squares full of found objects mounted on his walls. Loge says he gets most of his materials just by walking around his neighborhood.
5: Photographs, slides, uh, jewelry. If I'm in a park or if I'm in a new city or if I'm um, you know, on a beach, um, try to try to notice stuff. You end up seeing a lot of stuff that you otherwise you know might not notice.
4: One of his favorite spots is the soccer field at Marie Reed Learning Center, just a few blocks from his house.
5: This is a label from a Minnie Mouse plush toy. That's just a gross dead balloon.
4: As we walk, he scans the field, occasionally stooping over to pluck a piece of garbage from the grass.
5: A lot of bottle caps, but there are only so many of those you can have before you become that weird guy who collects bottle caps.
4: And then he sees it.
5: Oh, here we go. For example. Um, an electrical bus. He
4: clutches a clump of yellow electrical wires and begins to consider the possibilities. Maybe he'll make a piece about how technology shapes our views or the limits of our connections to each other.
5: We really want the world to make sense. And I think some people have a willingness or an urge or a desire to say that sense you thought was there isn't actually there.
4: And that makes me wonder. Is there any concern that some of your clients will see your art or hear this interview and think, Everything he's been telling us is a lie. There's no logic at all.
5: I don't, I don't think so. Both the politics and the art are about how we construct and operate in our world.
4: After all, as they say, politics is the art of the possible. I'm Jessica Gould.
0: see a slideshow of art made by Peter Loge head to our website metroconnection.org After the break moonlighters in music will meet some rather surprising rock stars
4: We want to sing things that are sort of not calm and every day happy and all about education and kids because that's what our lives are and this is sort of an escape from that.
0: It's just ahead on Metro Connection here on
2: WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today's show is all about moonlighting, you know, splitting your time between a day job and an after-hours hobby or gig. We've already met two moonlighters, one who combines executive recruiting and rescuing dogs, and another who does political consulting and art. In this next story, we're going to talk parenting and rock and roll. Those two things together may kind of sound like an oxymoron, but back in 2006, a bunch of D.C. parents got together to form bands for an event known as Palooza, And as Kavitha Cardoza found out, they've been rocking out together ever since.
3: Oh, that's a wig that I wore.
6: Pete Wilsey is going through his closet.
7: God, where to start?
6: There are 20 costumes in here. The Druid costume won't do. The Dictator costume isn't quite right. Neither is the Evil Wiggles costume. Wilsey finally finds what he's looking for.
5: This is one of my favorites. It's a jumpsuit that we had custom-made princess on the top and the D.C. city flag (laughs) underneath that. And it says, Property of Chevy Chase D.C. Correctional Facility.
6: (laughs) Three years ago, Wilsey formed the band Princess, named after his daughter's obsession with all things girly. The band's logo is bold pink.
5: Then we decided it will always be in all caps to give it a little masculinity. <laughs> and there you have it. Perfect.
6: <laughs> Wilsey's daughter Liza and son John are wearing princess T-shirts.
3: It's cool to see him uh-huh. like, do all the songs that are popular right now, but sometimes he can be a tiny bit embarrassing. Like the costumes. He wears funny costume, like diapers.
6: <laughs> They're referring to their dad's baby New Year costume. Princess is a band of mostly fathers, all lawyers, whose children go to Lafayette Elementary School in northwest D.C. They do punk rock covers of pop songs.
5: I am the lead singer in quotes.
6: Why in quotes?
5: Uh, If you ever saw us play, that would be readily apparent. Wilsey
6: and his band members do perform in public. Princess has done 35 gigs, including at local bars, block parties, and school fundraisers at Lafayette. And bassist Hunter Bennett says they're open to more.
5: If any school, frankly, asks us to do anything, we would happily play for them for free, or maybe even pay them to do it.
6: Wilty's garage has makeshift soundproofing. Mm.
5: Since this is a special occasion, should we actually tune?
6: This is where they practice their teeny bopper hits. Miley Cyrus's See You Again, Taylor Swift's You Belong to Me, and Beyoncé's If I Were a Boy.
8: If, If you drink, now's a good time to have a beer before we start playing. Consider
6: yourself warned. In Princess's hands, the ballad starts out tender.
3: If I were a
6: boy quickly becomes this. Sweating, screaming, writhing, and that, says drummer Vinny Badalato, is exactly what Princess is all about.
7: You know, as long as it's fast and kind of loud, that's sort of the Princess signature sound.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Speed and volume make up for a lot of mistakes. And, and outfits. Outfits, <laughs> yeah. and outfits,
9: true. outfits
3: theatrics, <laughs> jokes.
9: The We're masters
3: of, uh, diversion. <laughs> of uh, diversion. That's what Princess really is.
6: A few miles away, another parent band, Cheaper Than Therapy, is starting practice. Members' children go to Jannie Elementary, Deal Middle, and Wilson High Schools. Karen Harris is the lead singer.
10: The name of the band is Cheaper Than Therapy. We are actually quite cheaper than therapy. Why therapy?
3: You don't have kids, do you? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Harris
6: and drummer Pippa Trench met running Jannie's Parent Teacher Association.
10: It's D.C. public schools, so there's always a financial crisis of some sort. That
6: means lots of meetings to organize fundraising events. But also, says Doug Harris...
9: That's just the PTA stuff. Yeah, that, yeah, that, and, and on top of that, we have soccer. soccer and baseball coaches. We run our kids to music lessons, theater, baseball musical, games. baseball, swimming, dance, after school, language lessons... And that's homework as well.
6: And so this band was formed purely as a stress reducer, say members Trench, Harris, and guitarist David Boris.
0: It gives you a real release. It's like there's a busy, busy life going on. Everybody's
10: really kind of wrapped up in what they're doing, and this just takes you away from all that. We want to sing things that are sort of not all about kids because that's what our lives are, and this is sort of an escape from that.
7: I think what's cool about the band is that it isn't done to play kitty music for the kids, it's totally our thing.
10: Being
6: part of a band also gives these parents some street cred with their children, says Boris Harris and backup vocalist Elaine Eagle.
2: My son thinks this is the greatest thing.
6: <laughs> For some reason, I thought that the kids would be kind of embarrassed. I would say
9: that they're not old, they're old. old enough yet to be embarrassed. Have we can't been. wait till it does embarrass them.
3: <laughs>
9: there, there have been one, one or two times when the kids have asked us to turn it down. It's just been Which too loud. Too yeah. loud
11: right?
9: <laughs> of course we don't.
6: In this crowded basement, the members of Cheaper Than Therapy are letting go of stress, meeting friends and banging on the drums. I'm Kavita Kadosa.
0: CCPS parents are trying to organize another School of Palooza for this fall. For more information and to see photos and videos of the band's Princess and Cheaper Than Therapy, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Here's the thing about moonlighting as a musician. Um, It might not be reserved just for us humans. At the Smithsonian's National Zoo, a certain large animal recently revealed her secret love of music— Sabri Beneshore introduces us to this musical mammal, and in doing so, he tries to answer the seemingly simple question, just where
7: did we get music from anyway? So here's some music. (laughs) And this is also music. It's from a pygmy celebration in eastern Congo. But what about this? That last ditty is by Shanti. She's kind of new. You might not have heard of her because...
2: Shanti is our 36-year-old Asian elephant.
7: That's National Zoo elephant keeper Debbie Flinkman. Shanti plays slash plays with the harmonica.
2: She's just so interested in finding ways to make interesting noises. If a lock makes noise, she'll flip the lock repetitively. She will blow across the top of toys that we have drilled holes in.
7: Linkman ended up fastening a harmonica to a wall in Shanti's enclosure, and Shanti would play it.
2: It's not usually a long ditty, but it always ends in this really big sort of fanfare at the end, this big blowout.
7: But is that music? And actually, what is music? Music. Like, why do we have it? It
9: was an evolutionary accident.
7: Dan Levitin is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at McGill University. He doesn't subscribe to this theory, but he's helping me explain it. He says, back in 1997, this scientist, Steven Pinker at Harvard, got up before a group of musicologists and cognitive scientists at their meeting and was like, you're all wasting your time because music is... Cheesecake.
9: Auditory cheesecake. Cheesecake is interesting. We have this great fondness for it, but... Um, we didn't evolve a taste for cheesecake. It's an evolutionary byproduct or accident. In our hunter-gatherer days, it was an adaptive strategy, if you found any, to load up on fats and sweets because they were very hard to find.
7: So because we, for other reasons, like fats and sweets, we like cheesecake too. It doesn't mean that cheesecake serves an evolutionary purpose, goes the argument.
9: And he said the same thing applies to music, that um, our brains evolved... To want to communicate with language, and music just hopped along for the evolutionary ride so let 's take the idea of the beat. the
7: beat the beat the beat, the beat the beat human babies can keep a beat, most music has a beat, but most animals have no rhythm, like gibbons. These are monkeys that do kind of sing to mark their territory. The researchers tried to train these guys to just tap their finger in time to a metronome. Four hours a day, they practiced, for a year. The Gibbons could not do it. And then there's this guy. That's a cockatoo named Snowball. And he's dancing, like straight up dancing, keeping time, bobbing his head, kicking his feet. No problem keeping a beat.
5: Species that do this seem to be species that do vocal mimicry.
7: That's Greg Bryant. He's an assistant professor at UCLA's Department of Communication Studies. Cockatoos don't dance in the wild, as far as we know, so there's no evolutionary reason why they would have evolved to keep a beat, but they can. The birds evolved vocal mimicry, and it just so happens that helps with keeping a beat and dancing.
5: And so that might be the evolutionary origins of our ability, too, since we also can do vocal mimicry. But does that mean
7: our music is an evolutionary accident? Really? Ellen Disanayaka is author of Art and Intimacy. She's watching a video of a mother and her baby.
4: All over the world, adults behave with their babies uh, in ways they don't with each other. They make funny facial expressions, they move their heads and, and bodies in different sorts of ways, and they talk in a... Higher-pitched tone with a lot of repetition, a lot of vocal contours. It's, I think, very
9: musical.
7: That universally sing-songy kind of way mothers and babies interact, she says, could have been the kernel a million years ago of what we now know as music. She says it could have started as an emotional bonding system that increased the survival of infants.
4: Babies come into the world ready to respond to the repetitions and exaggerations and the elaborations of the voice uh, that the mother gives in baby talk.
7: And they kind of move together, too.
4: At some point in human evolution, humans invented what they call, what we call, ritual ceremonies.
7: As human societies became more advanced, they developed rituals and built on that fundamental parent-baby bonding. We went from baby talk to Beethoven. But maybe music was a different kind of adaptation. An adaptation for getting along. Here's Dan Levitin from McGill University again.
9: We now know that when people play music together, oxytocin is released. This is the, um, the bonding hormone that's released when people have an orgasm together. And so you have to ask yourself, well, that can't be a coincidence. There had to be some evolutionary pressure there. Language doesn't produce it. Music does. So the idea is that there's no primate society that I know of that has more than 18 males in the in the living group because the rivalries cause the groups to break apart and there's too much fighting. But human societies of thousands of members have existed for thousands of years. And the argument is that music, among other things, um, helped to defuse interpersonal tensions and to smooth over rivalries
7: Back at the zoo, Shanti loves to make sounds. Is it music? Elephant keeper Debbie Flinkman says it sounds like more than just playing around to her.
2: Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I figure, you know, a song is in the, in the ear of the listener. So I think it's music.
7: Dan Levitin thinks Shanti is just basically playing around.
9: But... I think that music is really, a, uh, falls along a continuum. There are things that are music-like. Where you put the dividing line, uh, I think, is subjective. After all, we
7: can hardly figure out why we even have music, let alone whether Shanti does. I'm Sabri Beneshore.
0: You can check out videos of dancing cockatoos and musical elephants and read more about the origins of music on our website, metroconnection.org. around the region. On today's Door-to-Door, to Door, we visit Fort Lincoln in Northeast DC and Glen Echo, Maryland.
8: I'm Robert Bob King. I'm the ANC Commissioner uh, representing Fort Lincoln. I'm the longest serving ANC Commissioner in the city, having represented Fort Lincoln for nearly uh, 30 years. Fort Lincoln is a self-contained community. It's uh, 360 acres within the city limit. Its boundaries are from Bladensburg to Eastern Avenue and basically over to South Dakota. Fort Lincoln is home to the largest population of seniors living anywhere in the city. I used to tell folks a story about folks living long in Fort Lincoln. I mean, there's a couple of hundred centenarians that live in the city. And at one point, we had as many as seven to eight centenarians, who over 100, living right here in Fort Lincoln. And we used to say that the reason that we had so many in Fort Lincoln, that maybe the water was different in Fort Lincoln than it was anywhere else. Fort Lincoln, in the beginning, afforded many uh, Afro-Americans first-time home ownership. It allowed families like my family and others to come into Fort Lincoln who would never have dreamed of owning a home. And it will be soon a home to Costco, sitting on 42 acres of retail land, uh, comprising about 438 square feet of, of space. Construction will start on July the 16th. You got the mix of the new folks who are coming in here with a substantially higher income than when we moved in here in 1976. So you get that kind of blend.
10: I'm Debbie Beers, I'm 62 years old and I reside in Glen Echo, Maryland. I'm the mayor of Glen Echo, I've been mayor for the past 20 years. Plan Echo is very small, it runs essentially from the entrance to the Clara Barton Parkway over to just before the one-lane bridge that leads to Cabin John, and it is right on the banks of the Potomac. The population since I moved here has been pretty steady, but it's under 300 people. The town was first plotted by the Balsey brothers who invented the egg beater, and they envisioned Glen Echo as a Chautauqua meeting place, so most of the houses were originally summer houses and then were converted later after the Chautauqua closed as a result of a malaria scare. Now, of course, Glen Echo Park, which is the heir to the Chautauqua campsite, is again a cultural and historic landmark. A lot of the residents take classes at the park. My husband and I just finished taking swing dance classes. There is a playground there, and of course the carousel is a big attraction for someone like myself who has four grandchildren. The carousel is a remnant of the old amusement park that used to be at Glen Echo through the 1960s when it closed, partly as a result of race riots. Because the park was segregated, people did protest, and eventually they decided to close the park, and the National Park Service took it over and now owns it. I love the fact that I know almost everybody in the town, that we you know, maintain a small community feel. Everybody knows each other and pretty much watches out for each other.
0: We heard from Bob King in Fort Lincoln and Debbie Beers in Glen Echo. If you think your neighborhood should be part of door-to-door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Next, realizing a culinary dream
2: when your day job is all politics. I never thought I'd be opening a restaurant. I mean, maybe it was on my kind of top 10 crazy bucket list of things to do, but really I thought maybe in retirement, not while having a you know extremely demanding day job. That and more coming your way on
0: Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And this week, we're meeting some of Washington's moonlighters. Earlier in the hour, we heard from an executive recruiter slash dog rescuer. We rocked out with D.C. parents moonlighting as musicians. And in just a bit, we'll hear from folks who've taken their moonlighting gig and transformed it into a full-time day job. But now, we return to a place we visited on the show not too long ago. All right, here we are on M Street. A certain eatery that opened earlier this year heading west Walking back to Unum. You may recall on our Global DC show how we met Unum's owner and chef, Philip Blaine, whose internationally inspired dishes represent a long-held dream of opening his very own restaurant. But this time around, we're here to meet Blaine's fellow dreamer and his wife, Unum's other owner, Laura Schiller. And tonight, Schiller is greeting and seating dinnertime customers.
2: Hi, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Melvin
12: for four, but we're only three.
0: As Unum's hostess,
12: we lost one on the way. On the drive over? <laughs>
0: At least that's what the longtime foodie cook and mother of a toddler does by
2: night. But by day,
0: can you tell us where we're standing right now?
2: Her job's a little bit different. We are standing in front of the heart building, which is uh, where our office is. You can see my office. Um, Right over there. That's the Hart Building, as in the Senate Hart Office Building.
0: And Laura Schiller holds a rather distinguished position in this nine-story structure on Constitution Avenue Northeast. She's chief of staff to Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer of California. How did you get involved with Senator Boxer?
2: Well, I grew up in the Bay Area in her congressional district. I knew of her and even had a play date with her daughter when I was in second grade. And, And actually, my first political memory is really of Senator Boxer coming out to the car with campaign literature. And legend has it that her husband coached me in soccer at one point along the way as well. Fast forward to 1992, when Schiller worked on
0: the campaign that propelled Barbara Boxer from the U.S. House of Representatives to the Senate. Schiller moved to D.C., where she helped Boxer with legislative and policy stuff for a while. Then came a stint as First Lady Hillary Clinton's speechwriter, another stint as the head of a consulting business, and in 2005, Laura Schiller returned to the Boxer camp to become the senator's chief of staff. So people watch the West Wing. They kind of know what the presidential chief of staff does. Can you talk about what your
2: job entails? You know, my job really is to help her to best serve, you know, the 38 million Californians and the nation. And really, at the same time, to help our amazing staff grow and serve her in the best possible way that they can.
0: And speaking of that amazing staff, I had the chance to interview two of Schiller's colleagues, Executive Assistant Kelly Boyer and Communications Director Zachary Coyle, both of whom, of course, see Schiller in the office every day. What is she like at her day job?
9: Wow, extremely energetic. I mean, just on the go all the time.
0: They've also seen her at night as diners at Unum. What did you guys think of your meal?
10: It was delicious. Um, extremely filling. Yeah.
9: I mean, the beet salad was incredible. What's
0: also incredible, Coyle says, is his boss's ability to juggle two such demanding careers.
9: Because um, this is an incredible job that you have to do here in the Senate. It's not a 38-hour-a-week job. It's a really intense 60-can-be-70-hour-a-week job. And then to, on top of that, be raising a great son and pull off opening a restaurant. It's a pretty incredible accomplishment. So we're very happy for her.
0: But at first, Laura Schiller says they were
2: actually kind of weirded out. I had to sort of convince them that they needed to let me take their coat. (laughs) They needed to let me, you know, bring them their menus and help serve them. And that was an amusing transition. But once I did it, they were relishing it. They loved having me serve them.
0: (laughs) Nothing like having the boss serve you. It's kind of (laughs) nice.
2: Hi, how are you? Welcome. Hi, I'm um, different. Christine had a reservation for four at seven. I don't know if she's here. I have not arrived yet. Would you like to sit down, sit at the bar? Either way is fine. Okay, great.
0: Laura Schiller and her staff may kid about the benefits of having a boss serve her employees, but all joking aside, she says it's service that actually connects the dots between her
2: two seemingly disparate gigs. Both of them are about trying to make life better for other people, whether it's trying to get them better health care, whether it's about serving them food, which is such a universal bind that brings people together.
0: And that, she says, is also pretty refreshing, because after a long day of partisan politicking on Capitol Hill, any sort of universal bind, especially one that's created over a meal with friends or family, can be a very welcome thing indeed. (music) To read more about Laura Schiller and to take a gander at Unum's menu, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So far in the show, we've been talking about adults who moonlight, grown ups. But our next story is about a local. Andrew Grant is a Silver Spring high school student by day. But over the past year, by night, on weekends, and during summer break, he's been something else. A novelist. Heather Taylor brings us his story.
11: Tracy Grant didn't have big plans for how her 15-year-old son Andrew would spend his summer break last year. And that wasn't by accident.
13: I'm a big advocate that summer should be a time for kids to get bored so that they learn to explore other things.
11: But pretty soon, the novelty of having free time wore off. I think he was a little bored. And Andrew came to his mother with a surprising idea.
13: He said, you know, Mom, you know how I still make up those stories?
11: At age 15, Andrew was already an old hand at storytelling.
14: I have been making up stories like in my head since I was about four, just like being in my room, throwing a a little red ball around, just making them up.
13: He would go up into his bedroom, lay on his back, throw up a red rubber ball, and make up stories in his head for hours on end. And my husband and I used to joke that sending Andrew to his room was never a viable punishment option because he thrived. He loved being sent to his room.
11: This time, Andrew thought he had a really great idea.
14: So I decided to write it down.
11: But something unexpected happened. Long after summer break was over, Andrew continued writing, and he ended up with a 327-page novel called The Black Hammer. Reading the book... It's clear that Andrew's a big fan of epic tales.
14: Iliad and the Odyssey, *Aragon* by Christopher Paolini, and like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter.
11: The novel takes place in the mythical country of Valdaria. In it, the hero joins forces with resistance fighters to overthrow a tyrannical government.
13: I read, and I confess I was stunned. I was stunned at how good it was but i was also was having a hard time assessing how much of that was maternal pride and how much of that was bona fide talent
11: realizing she couldn't be totally objective tracy grant who works as the kids post editor for the washington post decided to ask one of her colleagues to judge there was this one section
14: blake sat wordlessly on the back of the bike as zipped along the narrow dearth path that ran through the forest he looked around, gazing through the canopy of trees at the bright green, a tiny amount of sunshine fluttering down through the canopy, sparkling on the green. It was
13: among the nicest things that I have ever read. And so I actually asked the book review editor at The Post, just read this two and a half pages Tell me what you think. And his response was that he had never read anything like
11: that from someone who was, Andrew was 15 at the time. The book project has brought some unexpected perks for mother and son.
13: The teenage years can be tricky, and you can either grow very close or you can sort of become estranged and have lots of difficulties.
11: They've managed to avoid the latter.
13: It has given us this touch point for us to discuss so many things. My husband, the boy's um, dad, died five years ago. It's it's very difficult. In book, the main character loses his parents. It's been a, a launching point for having safe conversations about loss, about faith.
11: And a great grandparenting moment, too.
13: As he was writing, it also
11: became a wonderful thing for him to talk to his grandparents about. And in November, Andrew decided he wanted his grandparents to be able to have a copy
14: of his work. Well, I rushed it a bit at the end because I wanted to give it to my grandparents as a Christmas present.
11: So Tracy Grant called Politics and Prose the independent bookstore on Connecticut Avenue. It's got a self-publishing machine called Opus that can make a book from scratch. Usually in about five minutes.
13: Fast forward to Christmas when you know, he wrapped this book and gave it to his grandparents. You know, they were speechless, and it was just a wonderful moment.
11: Now, Andrew and his mom are hoping to bring his stories to a broader audience.
13: The manuscript is out to literary agents and publishers, and we certainly hope that something wonderful will happen. But something wonderful has already happened.
11: So if your teen ever expresses an interest in writing his or her first novel, you might want to offer Andrew Grant's advice. Go for it. I'm Heather Taylor.
0: If you'd like to read a sample of Andrew Grant's novel, The Black Hammer, you can find an excerpt on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Most of the people we've met today still have their full-time jobs and have to carve out time for their side gigs whenever they can. But once in a while, a part-time pursuit can become a full-blown career. That was the case for the folks we're about to meet. Emily Friedman introduces us to a trio of individuals working in three very different industries, but all experiencing the success of taking a side project full-time. Noel Gary is sipping iced coffee and finishing a
15: post on her blog. For nearly four years, she's covered the ins and outs of an industry that doesn't get much play here in the nation's capital. She blogs about stationery. I
2: inhabit a very happy little corner of the internet universe.
15: The blog is called Oh So Beautiful Paper and covers everything from wedding invitations to birth announcements to posters and greeting
2: cards. I have a whole room full of paper, so anytime my friends come over, I'm like, here, take paper home with you.
15: But she didn't always live in this world of letterpress and creative fonts. Not too long ago, she was working at the State Department.
2: Coordinating U.S. foreign policy between Djibouti and Somalia. At the same time,
15: she was meeting, dating, and marrying the man of her dreams. She poured every ounce of free time into planning her wedding and found, even after their wedding was over, she was still really into weddings, especially the invitations. So, she wrote about it on a blog.
2: When I started the blog, You know, I didn't intend for it to be a career, and it it sort of turned into one. And when I decided to try to do it full-time, my goal was really to try to replace the salary that I had been getting as a full-time civil servant. And so when I hit that goal, I was amazed (laughs) that it actually happened.
15: The money flows in primarily from sidebar advertisers who approach her about posting ads on her site. Managing those relationships, along with back-end programming and, of course, curating the dozens of submissions as they come in, keeps her busy and happy.
2: I honestly, I feel like I have the best job in the whole entire world because, you know, it's sort of a giant paper love fest every single day.
15: Noel admits she does think about her former life at the State Department and the people who work there. People like Alan Weinstein, who went from coordinating U.S. policy in Africa to welding steel in Capitol Heights, Maryland.
12: I design and fabricate cool, fun stuff.
15: We're in the offices of Weinstein's business, the Custom District.
12: I'm doing kitchen cabinet doors for a small development. It's about 150 doors. I just built a 9-foot-high shoe rack for a wealthy client.
15: The room is full of machinery. Metal cutters, jig tables.
12: ducks, vents, lots of electrical and airdrops, piles of steel and wood.
15: Today he's working on a stainless steel dining room table, which should take about three days of solid work before it's ready to hand over to his client. Project by project, he's been building his business for about seven years.
12: For an extended period of time, I really did the furniture work and international development consulting simultaneously. And it was a pretty even balance. I had a work day and then I ran home and started another work day.
15: Weinstein says he's grateful to be starting his own company as a second career. Because he spent time in the federal government, he says, he knows how to get things done in spite of obstacles. Only this time, if he doesn't get it done, it's his reputation on the line.
12: It's at times has been enormously stressful. And yet through all of it, I'm really, really content.
15: Just 30 miles away in Columbia, Maryland, there's another former Moonlighter who's finally sleeping at night. Her name is Funlayo Alabi, and she's showing me how to label a bottle, fill it with shampoo, and pack it for shipment. From here, the shampoo will go to a distributor and then to a whole food store somewhere along the East Coast. Three years ago, Alabi was working for a health insurance company. Now... She runs Shea Radiance and has four employees working in her production factory.
3: So this is about
11: 14 tons of shea butter shipped (laughs) directly in from our women's cooperative in Nigeria. Shea butter is
15: made by women throughout West Africa. The women collect nuts from the shea tree and grind them into a paste from which they extract oil. When the oil cools, it's shea butter. It's like a waxy balm. And it works wonders on dry skin, she says. Both of her sons have health conditions that make their skin really dry. So Alibi asked her mother to bring some shea butter from Nigeria. It worked. And though Fulayo and her husband immediately started working on the business, she didn't quit her job for another three and a half years.
11: I was at a point in my life that I knew that I had to follow my heart and my passion. You know, I felt like I would just jump out of my skin if I didn't do what I felt was in my heart to do.
15: For now, Alabi works on the company full-time, and her husband joins her at night. During the day, he works in a hospital in York, Pennsylvania, and commutes an hour and a half each way. Alabi says she hopes it won't be long before her husband can join her full-time and not have to worry about going back to work.
11: For most people that uh, pursue their hobbies and become entrepreneurs, the idea of going back to work is almost like the kiss of death. But we see ourselves being there for the long haul. By
15: the end of the year, Shea Radiance will be nationally distributed at Whole Foods. And starting this August, you can find their shampoos, whipped shea butters, and body scrubs on the shelves of 300 Target stores all around the country. It's been a long time coming, Alibi says. But with a full-time effort, you get a full-time reward. I'm Emily Friedman.
0: We have links at MetroConnection.org for Shea Radiance, The Custom District, and Oh So Beautiful Paper. And we want to know, if you were to leave your full-time gig to pursue a side passion, what would it be? You can reach us at Metro at WAMU.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is WAMUMetro.
3: Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars Let me know what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, darling.
0: That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Emily Friedman, Sabrie Beneshour, and Jessica Gould, along with reporter Heather Taylor. And speaking of Jessica Gould, we say a very sad goodbye this week to our trusty reporter, who's about to hit the road for grad school. We're wishing you the best of luck, Jessica. You and your superb storytelling will be missed. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Jessica Officer and Rafaela Benin. Jonna McCone and Lauren Landau produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll gear up for the 4th of July with a show about independence. We'll hear how independent bike shops are faring with the popularity of Capital Bike Share. We'll check out a theater performance intended for one audience member at a time. And we'll meet students at the Maryland School for the Blind as they prepare to strike out on their own in the school's new independent living house.
11: We're just like you. We can be independent. We can live on our own. And most people aren't. They see you and, like, shy away from you. And they don't have to.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.